Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack, easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff, easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel Food Crate, slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. Welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. I am excited to have a repeat guest. Only the closest of friends know him as the pterodactyl. <laughs> Blame the pterodactyl Tarnecki, the Boykin Whisperer of Hudson River Retrievers is with us. I am actually sitting across a room from him and fired up to be here. Kevin is on the other line. We're training for the Master National. Fired up. I'd like to give a quick shout out to some of our sponsors. We've got Yukonuba, the food that fuels Hudson River Retrievers and the Lone Duck Crew. Big thank you to Waypoint Outdoor Collective and Gunner Kennels. Uh, old, well, not old, Little Quinn has been riding in style in her gunner kennel on this road trip here. Um, right now I'm in Georgia at Blaine's place and Quinn is enjoying her gunner kennel. And I feel very comfortable and confident in her safety in that bad boy. All right, Kevin, let's get into the episode. Blaine, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you this evening? Doing great. Excited about the opportunity, buddy. Been a fun week so far. Oh, we've been busting our tail, man. And tonight's episode... We are talking about the grind, and Blaine called me. He was doing his dogs. I was doing mine separate sides of the field, and he goes, I got it. Let's talk about the life of a dog trainer and pros and the cons and the behind the scenes and all the good, the bad, the ugly, the highs, the lows, what it's like to be a trainer, and I'm like, Done deal. I get so many questions on Instagram about 
being a trainer and people wanting to be a trainer and how we got started. And I'm like, this is, this is going to be a good one. So Blaine, do me a favor, define the grind. It's just, a, it's the lifestyle. It's more than just getting up and, and training some dogs and putting them up and going to bed. It's, it's a lifestyle that affects your marriage, that affects your kids, that affects your home, that affects your hobbies. Um, it's, it's everything we do. We have to think about dogs. We have to think about where we're going next and, and everything. It's, it's our life at this point. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I think the point that he hit was the lifestyle. It's kind of, if I had to equate it to something, it'd be like being a farmer. You're up before the sun's up, you go to bed, or you're done working when the sun goes down, and then there's still chores after that. It's day in, day out, these dogs depend on us, and it's it's a lifestyle. It's not as simple as we get to play with dogs all day. We're lucky that we get to play with dogs all day, but that's not what it's about. Talk to, you know, every day you've got people here, clients, friends, day trainers. People sleeping on your couch. Yep. Zing. I hope you make him sleep outside, Blaine. He got you there. Yeah, he's more of an outdoor cat. Nice. Uh, no, it's true. I mean, I'm I'm sleeping on a blow up mattress here in Blaine's house. I'm, I'm super fortunate to, in the hospitality, but at the end of the day, I'm here chasing a dream, and we do what we've got to do to do that. And then I've got my family, my these people down here, and and anywhere we've traveled. I mean, Blaine goes all over the country as well, and the community that we have is so tight that we help each other. And so they open their home up to some Yankee and I'm, I'm sleeping here in their home and eating dinner with their family and kids. And, and that's, that's pretty special. So that would be a positive. Yeah. And it happens to us all the time. That's why we're so willing to open our home up because we know, you know, I'm going to have a buddy in Virginia or a buddy in, in Maryland or a buddy in Texas or in Louisiana that's going to open his place up to, to me to train and to, or if it's just simple stopping and airing dogs and not have to do it on the side of the road somewhere. Um, and just, it's, it's nice to have friends all over the country and it is family and we're tight knit. That's right. So, you know, that's, it, it is really special, uh, and fun. We've had a really good week, but I guess the point I was trying to make before I, we jumped into making fun of me sleeping on a couch was, or what, what point was I trying to make? Oh, you had friend people here all day long. And at home when I'm training, I've got people in and out all day long. And at, you know, five o'clock, they're like, all right, Bob, have a good one. And they get to go. Well, now I got to finish up the other dogs and go home and feed and air and clean and unpack food in a pallet and make phone calls the entire ride back. And there's so much behind the scenes to being a trainer and a business owner that I don't think people see or being on the road at a hunt test, what we have to go through in a hotel. And then, you know, yes, we lock our dogs up at night, but I'm still don't sleep well at a hotel thinking about them. And if I hear a dog bark, I pop out of bed and look out the window. I mean, these are things that people don't think about. Well, it's just the, the added time. You know, I remember running 
one or two dogs at hunt test when I was just my own personal dogs. And you feed them, you know, you let them run around the, you know, the little grassy field behind the hotel for a few minutes and, and you go to your room, you go to bed. Now you show up with a full trailer full of dogs and the simple process of feeding and airing dogs and putting water uh, in the box takes two to three hours. And so your buddies are out hanging out in the parking lot and having a good time and talking and, you know, you're out till nine thirty, ten o'clock just feeding dogs and you're ready to go to bed because you have to go to work the next morning and you have to be, you know, at your best. That's a fantastic point too about being at your best. We've got the biggest event of our year coming up, and I don't know about you, but I'm tired. I'm I'm mentally tired. I'm physically tired, and I'm I at some point want to get a good night's sleep and try and catch up a little bit, or just eat a little bit healthier, or do something where it's like I feel mentally prepared because the dogs are prepared. We're doing that all day, every day, but. I've got to be on my A game too, because if I miss a whistle, if I miscalculate something that that dog does, we could be out and I've got to be sharp. We've got to be sharp. And we have to be sharp. And, you know, part of the grind is not just the fact that we've got dogs running a great event starting this weekend. It's the fact that there's, you know, 15 or 20 other dogs in my kennel that need to be trained. And so when we want to spend so much time on dogs on the Master Nationals, that's great. But those clients are no more important than the client that wants the good gun dog. And we still have that dog in the kennel, still have that dog on the trailer, and they still need to be worked. So it's not just, you know, we're training a handful of dogs running a big event, but we've got, you know, we trained 40-something dogs today and did multiple setups and multiple drills. And you don't just do that in four hours. No, no, we don't. Um, was it yesterday? I can't. Uh, first of all, it's all a blur since I've been here. But I think it was yesterday we set the alarm, and we were on the road at about seven ten, which down here in Georgia is still pitch black. It doesn't get light out. The sun doesn't start cresting until about seven thirty. So at 710, we're on the road to our different training grounds, a little further away than Blaine's property before the sun's up so that we could pull into the field and have things rolling when that sun's up and get rolling so that we could have that day jam-packed with work. Exactly. And you got to get up early because you can't just, you know, even as the owner of the businesses, we still have responsibilities to let dogs out. It doesn't matter how many ribbons we get last weekend. We still got to, you know, clean poop out of a kennel. We still got to feed dogs. We still got to load trailers. We still have to get ducks out. And all that process takes, you know, a couple hours in the morning before you even get on the road and start having fun. Yeah, exactly. So our estimated time was leaving at seven. So we get up at five. Air dogs, water dogs, let dogs run and, and wake up, get all the ducks unthawed, catch all the live dogs, <laughs> make sure everybody's here, and, and we roll out and we hit a gas station and, you know, somebody's got to fuel up a four-wheeler or whatever. But we have everything timed out as best we can so that we can be in the field just before sun up. As that sun crests, we've got wingers and 
holding blinds and bird boys and women and live flyer station and everything set up so that that first dog rolls when, when we've got enough light and it's that kind of dedication. Honestly, most days, not every day, but most days in order to get our job done. And then we're not done at six o'clock. You know, everybody, when I used to work a, a 40 hour a week job, as soon as I clocked out at 5 PM, my mind was off work and onto everything else. As soon as we quote unquote clock off at let's say 7:30 PM, 8 PM, I still have to make phone calls. I still have to, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. I was just signing up for a hunt test. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on, you know, my computer getting, trying to get dogs into a hunt test and then the internet stops in my house. So I'm trying to reload and reload and re, you know, re-enter dogs and make sure that the client's dogs are in because they're depending on me to get the, you know, get them in and get them ready. And that was 8.45 PM on a Tuesday. And, and that's, that is the life of a dog trainer. It isn't all pick, picking up birds and throwing fun bumpers and teaching dogs to swim. And that's the fun part. The not so fun part is it's 24 seven. The minute you wake up, you're rolling. I might not eat lunch because I don't, I've got to take care of them or I wait to have breakfast until all my dogs are taken care of or wait to have dinner until all my dogs are taken care of. What's breakfast and lunch? No doubt. Yeah. We're usually eating something and in three minutes we're rolling again. It's, it's something to put food in your belly, but not to sit down and have a lunch. Um, is there anything good Blaine, about it? Have... <laughs> <laughs> My God, you guys are like two old ladies sitting there whining. You chose this no, life. A... You're right, Kev. That's a good point. We have been showing the difficult parts because a lot of people message us like, hey, I want to be a pro dog trainer. And these are the the things that people don't see until they do it. Yeah. And so one of my biggest advice, and I think Blaine, you would completely agree with this. He's shaking his head. No, I go work. I agree with Blaine. All right. Listen, go work for someone. You need a experience with many dogs, many different personalities, many different situations, go apprentice and be mentored by someone and, and work it six days a week. Feel the grind. And if you still love it, then it's for you. And I'll respond to Kevin's comment. We, we do sound two old ladies here. Um, and I, I've made comments about this in the past. I can't believe some dog trainers would complain about the life we have. Um, and we, I'm not, I don't complain. I love it. I love every bit of it. Um, it's just not exactly what everybody thinks. You get lots of comments from time to time. Oh, you're a dog trainer. That must be, you know, that must be nice. You're just out, out playing with dogs during the day. And it is, there's just more to it. I guess that's what we're talking about tonight. I know we got some good questions, um, that, that some pose through Instagram live and some other, uh, you know, avenues. And we're going to answer some of those, but we're just, you know, two guys shooting the breeze after, you know, nine or 10 days straight of, you know, just going hard with lots of dogs and other trainers being here with a truckload of dog and, and just, just getting after it. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> now, Blaine, how many dogs you got running in Master National? We've got five. Nice. Yeah. Are, are they all client dogs or any personal? 
I've got my old my old lab Gracie. She's running. She's eight, going to be eight coming up, and and she's going after it and, and doing really really good. All the dogs look really good. Um, I think they're just kind of peaking at the right time, and hopefully the work's going to pay off. They just uh, they, they're prepared. It's just a matter of everybody uh, doing what they know to do, and the stars aligning and getting six good series and getting the plate. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm getting pretty pretty jacked up thinking about it. It's exciting. Blaine, will you do me a favor and each dog that you have in, give me uh, their name, a quick description of their dog, and, you know, we're going to be doing this throughout Master National. I just want people to be able to follow along your journey. I think it'll be cool. Yeah, yeah, no, real quick, just uh, the first one was my dog, Gracie. Uh, she's a lab, great dog. She was a free dog given to me eight years ago that we were going to start up and, and turn into a hunting dog in the cell and turn into my best friend and sleeps on Bob's air mattress when he's here and, and in his lap on the couch, just a good dog. and um, Just a great dog, lover, um, sweet personality and running really well for an eight-year-old dog and, and doing good work. So if you all have followed Instagram and Facebook, if you remember the chocolate lab that I had in training that just went home, Gino, Gracie is Gino's mother. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but go on. Oh, I, I didn't just know want that. That's awesome. Little... Yeah. So that, uh, Gracie, we got a couple of her sons and daughters on the trailer right now, uh, getting ready to run, you know, get ready to run season and finished. Uh, but we've got Ryder, um, well, let me go back. Bob just uh, gave me a good idea. Creek, um, Creek is running Master Nationals. He's actually a son of Gracie as well, um, from her first litter to a buddy of our dog, buddy of ours dog named Tater. Um, he's a black lab as well. Good little dog. Uh, he's HRCH Master Hunter, doing really good work, and um, owned by a buddy of mine who's also a trainer. Uh, he just doesn't run AKC much, so I run his dog for him in Master Test and got him qualified. And excited about having you know the mother and son together. Uh, that's going to be really cool and, and special if they both uh, get a plate. Uh, we got a dog named Ryder, really nice chocolate lab. He's about five, six years old, been in training with me since he was a pup. Um, really looking sharp, just just a really nice dog. Um, just compliant, runs well, and, and just looking good right now. Um, we have got, uh, who we got? We got Easy, another chocolate lab, little female, probably weighs about 40 pounds, and just really nice. Um, also a daughter of Peter. Um, the same uh, father of Creek, so that's pretty cool to see her out there. And um, actually, she is owned by a young man that works for me in the summer, Walker Dixon. Um, so that's pretty cool. He throws birds for me all summer and cleans kennels and works his butt off. Um, moves in and just does an internship every summer. Lives with us and, and works hard. Man, one of the hardest working young men I've ever seen. Good kid. Um, and so that's his dog. And then we've got Buck uh, Boykin. Uh, who's just, I mean, he's just a bad little dog. Um, has no idea he's a boy, can think he's a lab, and thinks he weighs about 80 pounds, and um, owned by a very good client in Penn Sellers, who owns about 11 boykins and two labs, and um, hoping for good things out of uh, Buck. There's not been the, you know, one or two other boykins ever to get a Master National plate uh, at the Master Nationals, and so it's going to be exciting to see him go. He's looking, he's just looking sharp, man. He's just clicking right now. Very cool. So on our end, we've got Memphis, who is my dog. She is looking really good. 
she's looking really jacked up every day. And I love this about her every day. She comes out of the box ready to rip and, you know, a, like a, uh, a racehorse just ready, getting in the gates and ready to go. I I'm hoping that doesn't bite us in the butt. I feel like if she can contain the excitement for six series, she'll be fine. She knows the work. She she's honest, but if she can contain that excitement, we'll be all right. We've got Cruz who I co-own with the Burwell family who hosts us in Charleston and Cruz is the mama to our puppies and an awesome little dog. She's been pretty darn good this pre-training. She's usually at a hunt test. She has one fumble and then is beautiful the rest of the test. So I'm hoping, you know, if she's does what she normally does, that fumble isn't too big. And then we can just, hey, roll with it. And then Ember, the Chesapeake Bay Retriever, who's maybe two and a half. Go ahead. If that. Yeah, Blaine was going to make a joke. He he held back. I, I want to hear what he has to say. Say it. <laughs> Ember's a great dog. I can't wait to see Ember run. She has looked good the last few days. Proud of her. Yeah, me too, man. She. Uh, so I'll give you even a little bit more background. So Ember, Ember's a an awesome dog, and but but if you nitpick her, if you take instances to maybe teach and use a little bit of pressure or verbal pressure or what have you on a blind or, or whatever the case may be. If you, if you nitpicker and say, no, 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 heel closer or I don't know, something stupid, she'll get all weird and butt hurt. And then for like three or four days, she'll be out of sorts. And so I showed up down here, down South and she was a little butt hurt and we we ran the first day and I'm like, oh my God, we're in trouble. And then day two, I'm like, oh my God, we're really in trouble. And then I just I kind of went back to how I normally train her and I calmed myself down, not worrying about the this weight of that pewter plate, master national plate, and just said, you know what, I'm gonna just train her like she knows what to do. If she does. And we kind of got her out of it. And I bet the last, what, three days? I've been here almost a week. Three days, she has been whap, 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 just stepping on marks, hitting water, doing the right decisions. Work ethic is back up, and it's just we're back in the groove. So I'm really hopeful that we can carry that into next week. Yeah, and it's been cool to watch her. She has looked really good the last few days. And, you know, Olive Bovernum here with his dogs and he's running and, and, you know, it's fun to train with other professionals and, you know, they're in the same flight with us. Evan Thames was here and, and just a couple other people with one or two dogs, but, you know, we're all in the same flight to see their dogs train and, and get to know the owners more and, and, and get to know the dogs and then just be able to root for them. And it's not a competition. We're not trying to beat each other. We're all trying to get the same, you know, the same goal and that's to pass, you know, six series and get a flight. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Uh, I I want to jump in real quick. I think that's a really cool and interesting point to make that maybe not everybody fully understands is that you're not uh, kind of running against each other, so it isn't like Buck against Memphis or or you know whatever, but that it, you're against the standard and everybody's trying to compete and and just be better than the standard. Um, 
But so with that, uh, Blaine, how many of these have you done? How many Master Nationals have you ran? Oh, just, just one. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, Boykins haven't run a lot. We we specialize in Boykins for so long, and Boykins, you know, just haven't, they haven't been recognized with the AKC all that long, and there's only been a handful that have ever run it. And so we were just, uh, we did HRC and did that game, and um, until recently when we started taking in more labs and, and more Boykins became uh, AKC registered and started playing the master level game. Um, okay. it's, it's new to us as well. Okay. Well, so I, I was yeah. expecting you just to say because that. Of the, really just because of the breed um, yeah. and the fact that the breed wasn't running it. And there's still not a lot. I think there's four Boykins qualified out of almost 1,100 dogs going to uh, the master nationals. Holy crap. And so it's a, it's a rare thing just to have one qualified and be there. And so, um, only a couple have ever passed it. We did have one dog um, whose owner ran the dog in the Master National Amateur event um, this past year at Butte, Montana, and, and did get a pass. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, and he'll he'll be at the Master National as well coming up. So that's pretty cool for us. But um, we just we haven't played this game much because of uh, because of our breed and, and the fact that we ran HRC predominantly. Well, so but if you have run, if you've done it before. You at least got one leg up on Bob. Is there any advice that you would have for him or for anybody else who might be, you know, running their first first go at this? Yeah, you know, we there's a lot of a lot of talk about the difference between it and the grand, and um, you know, as far as each venue's you know highest level and the pinnacle of their you know their deal, and I think you know the Master Nationals is going to be tough, um, but it's you know it does like it is. You know, the stand is the same as it is on the weekend test. Um, the test is going to be harder. The judge is going to be a little bit more critical probably. But, you know, you get out there and you run your dogs like you do on a weekend test and, and prepare them for, you know, tough tests and tough marks and tough lines and, you know, get out there and give it your best. I don't, you know, it, it's, it's grueling. It's six series. Uh, there's no telling what we're going to see. Um, you know, we'll find out, I guess, Saturday morning, but, you know, get up there and run your dogs. You prepare your dogs and try not to be nervous and, and get up there and be cool and, and do the right thing. Like Bob said, timing and, and you know, preparation and all that is, uh, is is the biggest part of it. We're going to show up and do what we know to do with the dogs and hopefully see great results. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Do you do we want to jump into uh, some of the questions people had about, about the grind? Yeah. Yeah. So, again, this episode is called The Grind, and it's all about the life of a dog trainer. And so uh, around 7.30, 8 p.m., we're finally sitting down to dinner and cooking up some steaks. And so we, Blaine and I went on Instagram Live and said, hey, shoot us a question. And so the first question came from Brad Contrell. Was he wondering how part- Blaine takes his steak? That's what I want to know. Well, good that, question, that's Kevin. Down, that's down the line. It's down the line. Somebody oh, really? Ask that. Look at that. I Hell love it. Yeah, okay. Man. All right. So Brad asked, as a pro, what is too many dogs? He realizes that money drives people, but when is enough enough? He also said that those ribeyes would taste better on Master National Plates. So, Blaine, what is too many dogs? And how do you know what you can handle? Great question, Brad. 
Um, gosh, too many dogs is what I've got now. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, man, that's a tough question. It really depends on what what the goals are for the owners and, and you know how old the dog. So, you know, all dogs different ages take this amount of time. Gosh, I want to say one to you know one trainer to fifteen dogs is a great number. You know, sometimes we're stretched a little thin and, and have to do 20 dogs. Um, but, you know, 15 to 20 dogs is a nice number where you can, you know, you can get that done. Because you're, you're looking at, you know, so many different dogs with diverse backgrounds and, and different goals. And you can't just set up one thing and run them all on that one setup and, you know, that one drill. You're back and forth. Uh, all day long we you know this morning we started out real early and did d work and um forced a pile and force fetch and obedience you know spent you know a couple hours doing that and then we went over and set up a, a gun dog setup and ran out of momar splines and out of you know off dog stands and shooting guns over and blowing duck calls and simulating hunts and and you know dogs honoring each other while we're hunting and you know stuff that had nothing to do with you know, Master National's coming up. You know, and then we ran a, a little marking drill with Master National dogs. And, you know, then we moved over to water and did a big setup on water. And, you know, you run water and it takes two, three, four times as long as it does land. And so you gotta, you, you just gotta figure out, you know, how, how much time do I have during the day? How much help do I have? You know, if it's just one man having to set up wingers and reload wingers between every dog, you gotta add in the amount of time it takes to do that. If you got, you know, four or five dogs in force fest and then four or five starter dogs and four or five senior dogs and then a couple of master dogs, you know, you've got to break everything down differently for all the dogs. And, you know, for me, you know, 15 to 20 dogs is a manageable amount that I can handle and give every dog the attention that they deserve and that they need to reach the goals of their owners. I think that's the best answer I remember starting out and I, and remember I had apprenticed and worked for somebody. His name is Rhett Riddle. He busts my chops that I don't say his name on here. So I'm just going to give him the old shout out. He's running master national. I'm excited to catch up with him, uh, you know, Thursday night at the dinner. But anyway, when I worked for Rhett, I think I had 18 to 20 dogs that were young six months to a year and change. And they were the gun dogs, junior hunters up to T pattern. And then I also took care of the obedience dog. So I was working 18 to 22 dogs, I would say. And, and the difference is, and I can go, I can look at it from Rhett's perspective as someone that's got two other trainers working for me. You know, we give, I give one of my trainers a group of dogs that are all doing, you know, primarily the same thing. So they can spend an entire day doing, you know, what those dogs need, what that group of dogs need. And then I've got another trainer that's working another level of dogs. And then I'm going to try to work a, a certain level of dogs. For that guy starting out that doesn't have that help, you're looking at a real diverse group of dogs, all different ages and stages and development and you know, so you're doing different things. And so you gotta, you gotta map it out a little different. If I've got, you know, 45 to 55 dogs in my kennel, I'm not training all those dogs. You know, we've got personnel that's, you know, specifically 
you know, put into position to handle this group of dogs. And then they move up to the next group, and then they move up to the next one. And it just kind of it flows really well. But you have to look at it from both perspectives. Absolutely. That's a phenomenal point. So when I was at Rhett's working for him, I had one group of dogs. So there was four fetch in the morning in obedience. And then we went out and threw marks for Rhett. And then me and Ricky, he threw birds for me. Shout out to Rick James. That's his name, Rick James. Born on January 1st, New Year's baby. He was 50-something years old, the best guy around. And old Rick James would throw for me and Rhett and clean and help and all that jazz. But I focused on the young dogs and the tea pattern and the force fetch and the marking and the in and out of blinds and all the young gun dog junior hunter level stuff. Rhett was over there doing senior level, teaching dogs to run blinds and master dogs and, and field trial dogs. So we had different segments going on at different fields and different properties. Now for me, Bob Owens at Lone Duck, I have to do them all. So I've got obedience. I've got force fetch. I've got T pattern. I got master level dogs. And so it's honestly, to be very honest with everybody, it's been very hard for me to manage my time throughout the day of how much does each segment get? do to you know on tuesday i focus heavily on the big dogs and the young dogs get one session then on wednesday the young dogs get three sessions and the big dogs get one session i'm managing that i do have help at home in new york where he he helps do obedience he helps throw birds he helps reload wingers he helps get dogs ready but it's it's a process of, of fine-tuning. And so to answer Brad's question more bluntly, you have to grow with what you're comfortable with. When I left Rat and came home, 10 dogs was a lot. 10 dogs felt like overwhelming. And then I had 12. And then I had six. And I'm like, man, six is super easy. And then I had 15. I'm like, man, 15 is a lot. And then I had 12. And I'm like, man, 12 is super easy. And then I had 18. And then I'm like, man, 18's a lot. Oh, and then I had 24. And then when I started incorporating employees and, and help, 24 didn't seem so bad. And so it's it's about managing yourself, about managing your time, about managing the dogs, and allowing the quality. And I think Blaine's going to nod to this. Quality. And keeping clients and dogs happy is our number one goal. That's what we get paid to do. Yeah, and so yeah, when you and so when you get to the point where you're hiring another trainer, I can't just sit back with my truckload in my field doing my stuff without thinking about okay, what are they doing over there? What are the dogs looking like? And so there's you know, a day during each week where I'm going to go out and I'm going to get on four-wheeler and I'm going to throw, du- throw ducks for the young dogs because I want to watch them. Not because I don't trust or appreciate what anybody else is doing, but I want to see for myself how, you know, what do those dogs do on these marks? How can I help that person be better at what they do? Because at the end of the day, I'm responsible for what those dogs are doing. I'm responsible for them, their path great and I'm responsible for them being ready for hunting season so it's it's, you know there's added pressure uh, to have another working for you yeah 
So I think his question is, there isn't a number. It's managing the dogs, making sure that the quality is to the standard of you and the client's expectations of what that dog is going to perform when their time is done. And, and if 12 is too many for you, then only do 10 and make those 10 great. If 10 is too many, do five and get good at doing five. It, there is no number. You know, there are some friends of Blaine's and mine's have like 120 dogs in their kennel, but they've got an infrastructure and a business that can sustain that. They've got, you know, employees that are trusted and are managed properly and they're turning out 120 great dogs is what it is. Um, all right. Next question. Hunting dog of the day on Instagram said, how often do you have dogs fail out of your program and why? Great question. It's a hard, it's a hard thing it, to swallow. It, it is a hard question and it's a hard decision to make. Um, but you've got to be completely 100% honest with every person that you deal with and every dog that comes in. And I have a, you know, we have this conversation with every single new client and new dog that comes in. We're going to take it month by month and see how the dog's progressing. And if at some point I don't think the dog's going to be able to reach the goal that you have for it, then we're going to have a conversation and we're going to talk about it. And we're not going to drag it on. Um, the worst thing you can do as a dog trainer is to drag that out and not communicate with the owner and not let the owner know that things aren't going well. And so we try to be open and honest and have those tough conversations ahead of time. And typically they appreciate that. They'd rather, you know, you have a talk with them a couple months into the process and say, you know what, you know, little fight is not doing as well as we'd hoped. Um, we're having some struggles here and there, and we're going to try to work through them, but we've got to make a decision sooner or later. Is the investment worth, you know, what we're going to get out of it at this point? And I would much rather tell someone that, you know, the dog is just not cutting it in what you want it to be. Maybe it's going to be a good hunting dog and, and a good riding buddy, but it's not going to make a master hunter. It's not going to make a hunt retriever champion. And, and so let's not, you know, let's not invest all this money into something that we're not going to possibly accomplish. So that's, it's a tough, tough decision to have to make and a tough conversation. And everybody wants, you know, their dog to do well, but I'd rather be honest and upfront with someone ahead of time and tell them, look, you know, this is this is the struggle we're having, and and you know, a lot of times they'll say, "Well, just keep trying, um, and, and see what you can get," or they'll say, "Well, let's you know, let's let's cut it on this one and try again with another one." Blaine, is there a certain breed of dog where you feel like you you run into that more than others? Not really. I mean, I'm dealing primarily with with Boykins and Labs. Oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> Probably 60, 70% of my dogs in the family are Boykins and the rest are Labs. We'll get a, a golden from time to time. A shout out to Kevin's got a great golden litter on the ground right now, ready, um, ready for some new owners. But, uh, my man. We've had a couple good goldens, man. And, and, you know, we've had a couple goldens that I just struggled. We had a golden recently, couldn't swim, loved water. But I thought I was going to save that dog's life several times in the pond. No um, way. Swim. Um, I mean, he would puppy paddle and he'd throw a 40 yard mark and it'd taken 12 minutes to get to it because he was so slow because he wasn't moving forward. He just bobbing up and down. 
Um, it, it, so it happens with all breeds. You know, you're going to see a lab that doesn't like a duck from time to time. You're going to see a, <laughs> a, a toller. Bob's dealt with tollers and, and GSTs and more versatile breeds. Um, I'm pretty picky with what I take in, and, and we try to take well-bred dogs that I think are going to do the job, but you're going to have you know, the best breeding at some point, you're going to have a, a puppy out of the litter that just isn't, you know, isn't up to par with the rest of them. And that's just something you have to be honest with, with the owner, um, and not try to hide it and not try to think, well, if I just keep doing it, do it, I'm going to fix it. Um, you know, people make that mistake all the time and they just, you know, try to cover over it and just say, yeah, they're doing great. We're, you know, we're, get, we're getting there. And then the owner comes to get the dog and it's not what they paid for. And I don't want to be the guy that hands them a dog that's not ready to do what they have paid, you know, a lot of money to do. And this isn't a cheap hobby. And we've got to take into consideration these owners and, you know, they're trusting us to do a good job. And if, if the dog can't do it, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take the responsibility of what the dog can't do. So I'm going to be open right up front and say, hey, this isn't working. Yeah. I'm not going to beat the dead horse on that. Uh, I think he answered that question thoroughly. I think if I had to give the how often do dogs fail the program and why, for my program, for a basic gun dog, it's more rare. I don't have people, you know, I don't have a ton of people saying, hey, I want a master hunter. And their dog can barely pick up a, a single. It, that's not as common. For me, it's like, I want a great hunting dog. Well, that's a more reasonable expectation out of an animal. And, you know, Blaine hit the nail on the head of like being open and honest and saying, Hey, this is where your dog's doing well. This is where your dog's struggling. This is what we're working on. You know, I'll, I'll reach out to you next week and we'll give you an update. Being open, honest is key in any business and anything you do in life. Be honest. That'll go a lot further than covering crap up. Um, the reasons dogs have failed out of my program. If the dog comes and is either aggressive towards me or other dogs, I don't have time for that. I don't have the facility for it. I don't have time for it. So if you're going to, Every time I open that kennel door and it's time to go to work and you snarl at me, hey, not worth my time. Go home. So that's a number one. And we usually will address that before the dog comes and ask questions to the owner like, hey, does it get along with people and other dogs and blah, blah, blah. And most times people are honest, but sometimes they aren't. And it is what it is. So I've failed dogs out of my program because – they were people or dog aggressive. Um, and then some dogs just don't have it, man. You can, after putting in, I usually tell people, give me a month. I'll at least get formal obedience done. And if the dog doesn't cut it in that month, won't swim. Won't swim. That's not good. <laughs> you know, that's not good. Um, doesn't like a bird. Yeah, and then, like, you know, the general answer of, like, oh, we'll force-fetch him. Yeah, well, guess what? Blaine, how many dogs have you force-fetched? A lot. Same Z. <laughs> I mean, a ton, 
And some dogs, even after force fetch, will resent the work, will resent the duck, will resent you. And at the end of the day, the owners don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want to make the dog do it. We want the dog to do it and learn that by complying with us and, and having fun, they get to do what they love. Go ahead, Blaine. Yeah, and, and some dogs need just to, to grow up and mature. Um, we have a boy in, uh, it's been several years back, and a very well-bred female. That dog wouldn't fetch a Krispy Kreme donut if you rolled it out in front of her. She just wasn't <laughs> going to taste it. And we went through first few months of, of training and did some things and, and, you know, started some force fetch and man, this dog still wouldn't, wouldn't chase a bumper, wouldn't chase a ball, wouldn't chase a donut, wouldn't chase a duck, nothing. And so I called the owner, a nice lady from Tennessee. I said, ma'am, I said, this is what your dog's doing. You have a couple choices. Um, number one, you can just take the dog home, let it grow up a little bit and we'll try it again later on. Number two, I can put an extreme amount of pressure on the dog and make it do it, and she's not going to have fun. But she'll do it. Or number three, you can just let me play with the dog and treat it like a puppy for a little while, and we'll see what happens. She opted with number three. So I would I would take the dog with me most days. Some days I'd leave her home. But I'd take her with me, and I would when I was setting up marks and, and holding blinds and wingers, I would bring the dog with me on the range, and she'd ride around and just be a puppy. I would get her out, and, uh, you know, when we got done, and I would pitch bumpers around and see if she would chase it. Most of the day, she wouldn't. I'd ride around the property just to, to hang out with her, and nothing. Well, one day, after about a month of doing that, we were finishing up throwing marks, and the bird boy was breaking stuff down, and I got the little dog out. And I was just playing with her, and I tossed the bumper as far as I could throw it. And that dog took off like a rocket ship, went out, picked up the bumper, and brought it back and sat down and held it. And I yelled at my bird boy on the radio. I said, hey, stop right there. Throw that, throw a mark for me. He threw a duck, you know, 90, 100 yards away. The dog ran out like a good dog, picked the bird up, came straight back and delivered the hand. I called the woman instantly and said, hey, your dog's fixed. He was like, what are you talking about? A couple months later, we had a season title on her. A couple months after that, we had some finish passes. And so it just took the dog a little time and I don't know what was going on in the dog's head, but it finally realized that this was fun and I enjoyed doing this and it worked out. So sometimes it just takes a little time for a dog to mature and everybody's in a race to get their dogs done quick. Um, whether it be money or just to be able to say, Hey, my dog got a finished title or a master title by such and such age. And so people have to realize they're just like kids. They develop at different ages. Um, they get things at different, you know, different times, and you just have to train the dog you have. Um, you can't put them on a timeline, and you can't rush them. Nice. job. Yeah. All right, next question, and we've got a bunch from this gentleman. On Instagram, it is called uh, Lost Highway Gun Dogs. I highly suggest everybody follow him. He seems like a super nice guy, um, and he works, works dogs. He's another professional dog trainer, but – these questions really pertain to me and Blaine and some of the difficult things we have to deal with and they're poignant questions. Hey guys, I said poignant. That's a big word for Bob. All right. Poignant questions. <laughs> All right. From Lost Highway Gun Dogs. 
when and how do you decide to grow since it's tough to find good help? Go ahead, Blaine. Good help is one of the hardest things we have to get. A lot of young guys want to get in the dog trainers or girls. I've got, I've got a young lady working for me. She's 21 years old. Um, and so it's not just a guy sport, um, but they get going in the business and they think, well, I'm pretty good. I've, I've trained a few dogs now and I'm going to go out in business on my own. So you have to deal with that aspect that as soon as you start pouring into someone, they're ready to leave and do it on their own. And you've got the aspect of the fact that, you know, we're not paying an entry level person a whole lot of money. And it's not easy in the summertime when it's 98 degrees in Georgia. It's not easy in the wintertime in New York when it's, you know, just frozen and snowy and, and cold all the time. And so it's not an easy job and they're not making a ton of money and they're just, you know, doing what seem to be menial tasks and it's not always fun. And so, you know, it's hard to find good help. There's, you know, not a lot of young kids these days that want to bust their butt every day to learn a trade like this, uh, to, to one day have a, a, a career in this kind of business. So it's, it's, it is hard. And so you've got to, you've got to really value, I think, your employees. If you've got anybody, no, no matter what they do, and it's hard sometimes, but you have to really, you know, put some value on them, not just monetary, but, you know, in the way you treat them and, and the encouragement you give them and the jobs you give them and, you know, make them feel like they're needed, you know, you know, in your business, in your company. Uh, because we can't do what we do without all those extra hands involved every day. Yeah, I agree. And I think to answer, so first of all, to find good help, I think Blaine nailed that answer. It is hard to find good help. And the whole first 20 minutes of our podcast was that old lady bitch session of all the hard things that we have to deal with. And those employees have to grind with us, picking up poop, getting up super early, working super late, throwing nasty, maggoty, dead ducks, throwing maggoty, dead ducks away. You know, just nasty, weird things that why would we have to do what we do? They have to do them along with us. And like Blaine said, we aren't. First of all, we aren't making a ton of money and they aren't making a ton of money. So you're you've got to love it. If you don't love it and you're just doing it for the money, then it ain't going to work. Now, how do you decide to grow? To me, Blaine, I don't know the answer. To that. I think if you, if you can handle one or two more, try it. If your quality is the same, good. If it's not, then back off. If you have to do five more to be able to hire that employee and try it out, and after two or three months it doesn't pan out, then you got to scale back. Like It's a part of growing a business, whether you're training dogs or a software company or an accounting firm. That's business. You have to be a good business owner, not just a good dog trainer. Exactly. It's, it's really not about dog training. It's about being smart, you know, counting costs of what it's going to be to grow. You know, if you add a person, you know, how many dogs do I need to take in for me to still make money and pay this person? Because I'm not going to lose money by hiring somebody. And so what do I have to do to make it worth my while? But it's not just their salary. It's, well, I've added, you know, 12 dogs to the kennel. 
Now I've got to feed 12 more dogs. Now I've got to house 12 more dogs. Now I've got to have another truck, another trailer, you know, that much, you know, I've got to double the equipment. And so it's not just the cost of, you know, hiring someone to do it, but it's all the other things that come with it. And then there's the quality control. You know, every day I, I, I think about that. I write messages to my guys, the girls working. All right, you need to work on this. You need to fix this. You need to do this. And so, yeah, there's a lot of days I get back to the kennel. I think, man, I wish it was just me and my wife with 15 dogs. You know, would I make as much money? Would I have as much quality time with my family? Would I be able to spend time like today? We work 12 hours, and I said, look, boys, I've got to go. I've got to teach my son how to drive on five-speed. So I had to leave the field, because, and not because I had to, because I wanted to. I wanted to spend time with my son. But luckily, you know, I've got a young 20-year-old girl who had worked her dogs and did you know, all of her chores for the day. And then I said, hey, you got to come out here and throw birds for Bob so he can run his dogs so that I can spend time with my son. And so it's it's about counting the cost of, of growing and is it worth it? You know, I, you know, do I make more money now with, you know, 50 dogs in my kennel than I did with 20? I don't know. You know, it, I'd have to sit down and look at <laughs> yeah, it. I was going to say, we should probably know that answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can figure it out pretty quick, but it's it's, you know, is it worth it? I guess that's a better question. Not, am I making more? Yeah, I'm making more, but is it worth it? You know, is it worth the, the, you know, the, the things that I have to sacrifice in order to keep that going well? Sure. Good answer. His next question. These, these next two are going to be from the same guy, Lost Highway Gun Dogs. How do you balance gun dogs while campaigning test and trial dogs? Yeah, that's what we've been doing all week. Because you can't neglect the other dogs in the kennel. You know, if I'm charging $800 a month to train a dog, then, you know, Joe Gundog from Louisiana, his $800 is the same money as, you know, Master National Dog from, you know, it's $800 that they're paying me to train their dog. I can't neglect one for the other. And so we've got to take time. Are there going to be weeks where we spend more time with a certain group of dogs? Absolutely. But then we're going to make it up and spend more time with, you know, a younger set of dogs. I think we spent, like today, for instance, we spent a good deal of time with young dogs today and helping them, you know, learn some new skills and, and be in some new positions. And it was fun. Um, and it was good for those dogs. But you, you just got to maintain balance um, and, and make sure that you're keeping, you know, you're doing the right thing for all the dogs. And a day off is not going to kill a dog and, and hurt their progress. Um, and so you just got to, it, it goes back to understanding scheduling and balance and, and just doing the right thing for every client. Now, I, I agree with you and I have nothing to add. The only thing I will add is as a trainer, that is one of my stresses. Plain and simple that like, I always feel under the gun. And this is like a personal thing for me. This is like opening up and talking about feelings and being real soft. I always feel like, oh, I wish I did more with this dog that day. Or, oh, I, I wish I did this with this group of dogs. I always feel under the gun. And so I, I really understand this question. Like, yeah, we balance it because we just bust our ass and we get our things done. And, and you do have to just balance it and figure it out. 
But the answer is, I don't, I've been doing this professionally for four years. And I don't think there's been a time in my young career that I haven't felt like I wish I did more. I always feel that. How about you, Blaine? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I like to succeed. Damn right. I like every dog. I want every dog to pass. If I'm selling an owner and signing a dog for a damn test, I'm 99.9% sure that dog can pass that test. If I'm telling the owner this dog's going to be ready for early teal season, then this dog's going to be ready for early teal season. And so then if you have our kind of work ethic and the kind of work ethic it takes to be successful at this, that's therein lies the problem. You're going to work and work and work until it's dark. And then you've got to think about, oh, you know, I've got a wife. I've got kids. I've got, you know, other responsibilities outside of my job that I take care of. And so it, it's tough. Uh, but, yeah, to answer the question, it's, it, it's, it's every day it's, it's a question I have in mind. Did I do – did this dog get enough attention? Did I, you know, go the extra mile to make sure that I work that dog in the mutt hut today so I can make sure the owner was going to be okay when he took that dog hunting? Yep, no doubt. Now, we sort of answered this question earlier. I do think it's a poignant one. Managing client expectations and possibly breaking bad news. Yeah, we, we, we did talk about that a lot. And it's, you know, they have to be reasonable in their expectations and understand that they're dogs. Um, you know, they don't all progress, you know, progress the same way. And you've got to work through that and, you know, I love it when it's possible. I had a, a, a new client come out today that I've been, you know, his dog has been in my program now for four months. And I've never met him before because he was with my other trainer. So he came today and met me because the dog is moving up the, the ladder, so to speak. And we met and he watched dogs train for four or five hours and he got to see all the different levels and I was able to tell him okay, this is what you can expect by an average dog that learns at an average rate, you know, in six months, in eight months, in two years. But not all dogs are the same. And so it just goes back to letting them know that, you know, we're going to just go, you know, go through it as we go through it, and I'll keep you updated and let you know how your dog's progressing. Yep, I agree. I would say... Honesty is the best policy. As a business owner and dog trainer, you need to understand their expectations of the dog before they send the dog to you. And then when they say, I want a master hunter, let's just say that as the example. I want a master hunter. You don't say, mm, I can do it in six months. That's an unrealistic expectation for a, a young dog or whatever. You have to, you can't just throw out pipe dreams. You have to throw out the below average, the average, and then the exceptional. And you have to, throughout the process, engage the owner and keep them updated and show them and have them out and show them the dog and keep them updated on progress. And I think... 
again, this is business. This is this isn't dog training. Manage expectations. If I was a back in the day, I was a copier salesman. If I sold somebody a household copier, but they expected it to print paper like a magazine, I undersold their expectations. If you give me a dog that you want a master hunter in four months and I tell you, hey, I think I can do it, that's unrealistic expectation, and now you're going to let them down. Exactly. The first question I ask everybody when they start the conversation about training the dog, I always say, what do you want your dog to be when it grows up? You know, what's your final goal? Well, I think that's even broad. When you get this dog home, what do you want it to be? Because, I mean, that's a they might think that's a five-year plan. If they want to sign up for the four-month program, I want to make sure that they understand fully what my four-month program is going to look like at the end. Does right. that make sense? For all the new dog trainers out there, a four-month program is a bad idea. Go ahead. Explain why. What are you going to accomplish in four months? Unless someone simply wants an obedience trained dog, but you never know. It may take you three months to force fetch the dog from start of hold through force to pile or through swim by. And so timelines are a dangerous, dangerous thing to get into uh, with anybody. And so I do, I, I make it, I make it pretty simple. We have a six month minimum. I don't want to touch your dog if it's not going to be here for under six months. And we tell you that up front. Even if you want a basic gun dog, one that's steady to go pick up ducks and bring her back, not even running blinds yet, I'm going to tell you six months. Give me time to train your dog. It may finish what you need it to do in five months or in four months, but it may take six or seven months. But don't paint yourself in a corner by giving out numbers. How long is it going to take to do this? I think it's a dangerous, slippery slope to, to climb on, and you just need to avoid that. Good advice, and I could probably, I could definitely use that. Not probably, I could definitely use that because there are dogs who don't fit that mold, and you feel like you're cramming, and then I stress myself out. That, exactly. right. That's what you do. You cram, and what you end up doing is you put too much pressure on the dog because you put too much pressure on yourself to finish in an unrealistic timeline. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. What I expect, I'll just back that up. What I expect out of a four-month program or a gun dog program, not handling a ready-to-hunt dog, is force-fetched, formally obedient, collar-conditioned, steady, good with birds, and that's it. Generally speaking, 80 to 90% of the time, I can get that done. But there are those 10 to 20 percentiles that don't meet that mold. But here goes back to managing expectations. I need to let them know at month two, hey, you're behind the eight ball. Your dog is not where it needs to be. It's not the average. You know, it might take us a little more here, a little more there. Are you okay with that? If not, let's pull your dog now. Honesty keeping people updated and knowing what you're capable of is probably a good rule of thumb. Do you agree? Absolutely. hundred percent. All right. Next question. Work life balance. He has a new baby. You've got two kids of your own. You have a wife. 
How do you manage that? And is that something you struggle with? Struggle with it more than anything. Um, because I'm such a driven person and I want to work and want to do right for my dogs. Um, unfortunately, sometimes your family takes the back seat. I've got a great situation in that my wife works with me full time. She is part of my team, part of my crew. She's my medical staff. She is my bird girl someday. She is whatever I need her to be every single day by my side, helps me out tremendously. Um, and she's a, she's a part of our day to day activity that I couldn't do without her. My kids have grown up most of their lives in this routine. Um, they understand it, but it's not just because they understand it doesn't make it right. And sometimes I've got to decide, okay, you know, I'm not going to this contest this weekend because such and such is going on in my kid's life. If your clients can't understand that, I don't want to say this, but it, the fact is I don't want you as a client. If they don't understand that my family comes first, then we're going to have to have a conversation. And all of mine understand that. We talk about it in front. And I'm not going to do things that's going to jeopardize my family. Um, I'm not going to jeopardize my marriage over a dog. And, you know, that's that's something, that's another conversation that comes up front. Um, I'm not going to talk to you on the phone all day. I'm not going to talk to you on the phone at night when I'm trying to eat dinner or just sit on my recliner with my wife and watch TV. Um, we're going to train your dog. You're going to have to trust that we're going to do what we said we're going to do. And, you know, that, that comes with, you know, doing it good for, for years and, and then trusting you. And, you know, I've got people that have had dogs, you know, six, seven, eight dogs, you know, with me over the years. And, and they know we're going to do what we said we're going to do. But that, you know, you got to manage that and, and understand what's more important. This is a topic that hits real home to me. And I probably don't do it well enough. Work-life balance for me is very hard. And again, like Blaine said, it's partially because we're so driven and we expect a lot out of ourselves. And when we look in the mirror at the end of the day, we want to know that we put in everything we have. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy balancing family and Blaine's got a wife and kids. I have a girlfriend that I, I love dearly and you know, want to build a future with, but we aren't normal. We aren't home at 5 p.m. and can sit down to dinner and, and go out to a movie and, and dinner and, you know, on a Tuesday, every Tuesday. It's just, it's not normal. It's not a normal life because what it comes down to is these dogs depend on us. If I don't let them out, they don't get let out. If I don't feed them, they don't get fed. If I don't check them for injuries, they don't get checked for injuries. If I don't do what it takes to keep them safe, happy, healthy, I'm to blame. And those dogs don't have a choice but to be under my care and custody and control, right? Like they are... They are my responsibility and nobody else's. And therefore, other people suffer. And I I and Blaine and everybody who does this are fully aware of that. And unfortunately, our families hurt because of it sometimes. 
But at the end of the day, that's partially why we both want to grow so that we can employ good people who are trustworthy and care for these animals, these other people's family members, so that we can trust that they're doing the right things when we're gone so that we can spend time with our family and take a vacation and take a Sunday off or leave at 5 p.m. on a Tuesday and go to dinner. But it's really hard. The work-life balance for me has probably been the hardest thing of anything. The work itself is not hard. The work-life balance is hard. I want to laugh at Bob because he doesn't, you know, he's not married yet. Yet. He doesn't have kids. And so we've got a special guest that just arrived at the living room. My wife and number one bird girl and vet tech and dog transporter and kid wrestler and everything else. Um, it's hard. And, you know, every day is, there's, there's no normal days. There's something different happening every day. She makes multiple trips to the vets every week, answering calls from clients, billing, invoicing, all the fun stuff. So there's there's no normal schedule until the person asks, you know, what, what was that original question that we're answering? It's work-life balance, and he just had a new baby. All right, so this gentleman's a, a new dog trainer, just had a baby, and is is talking about work-life balance. You know, what would you say to him about how to balance, you know, a new baby, a wife, and being a dog trainer? Go ahead, Angela, answer the question. Take the Angela, my wife. Your wife is always right. <laughs> She's going to hang up. I really answer it, Angela. Go ahead. This is a hard question that we all deal with. Go ahead, Angela. Okay. You just have to find a way to make time, even if it's just a little time. And even if you're aggravated at the end of the day, because maybe things didn't go the way you wanted it to, you have to push that back down and, and swallow it and, make a little time for happy time for your family because in the end you know that counts too you want to be successful and and do a good job but if you don't have your family then you know kind of all for nothing right yeah thanks Angela I think that's something again truthfully with everybody that's on this that's something I really struggle with as quote-unquote successful as I want to be and strive to be and all my big goals that I have in life. If I have no one to share that with in 10 years, is it worth it? Well, and the woman knows the best is standing right here. I'm a jackass. Yeah. Well, we all know that big fella. And so I want everything to be perfect all day long with every dog. And so when something goes wrong, I lose my cool, I lose my temper, and sometimes it gets, you know, deflected to the wrong people. Maybe it's not their fault. Maybe I didn't explain well enough what I needed. Maybe the dogs just act like idiots that day. And I'm all I'm thinking about is what is going to happen Saturday at the test when this happens and there was a reason I wanted to go this way and we can't control everything. And I have a hard time with that. Yeah. You can't, you, you can't blame 
everybody else. And I say that thinking I'm the worst at this than anybody, but I want, I want my dogs to be perfect. I want things to go well. Yeah. We'll let that ride. I think that's, that's really in depth. It's really personal for both of us. And I think anybody who does this as a career is going to always struggle with it because no matter what, those dogs need us, but so do our families. So I don't know the answer. I think I try hard every don't day. Don't be to, a dog trainer and get a 40-hour week factory job and go home and not work about it. Yeah, enough said. All right, on a more positive note, J.A. McCarter, favorite resource when you were getting started, video, DVD, book. What did you rely on when you were getting started? I had befriended a few trainers and other amateurs that were really good at what they did. Um, I studied them, but I also studied where they got their, you know, where did they learn from? And then I studied the teachers of those guys. And so, you know, predominantly everybody you talk to, it all boils down to Rex Carr and Rex Carr's, you know, force fetch. He's the one that develops the thing that we do with all of our dogs every single day. There's been, you know, changes and, and, you know, improvements in the methods, but Rex Carr was the originator of everything we do. And there's people that study under Rex Carr, like, you know, you, you can look at Evan Graham and what he has done with the smart work program. I think that's an excellent program um, for new trainers, uh, amateurs that is as concise and in depth as any of them. Um, you know, I tell people that, and I don't mind helping someone that wants to train their dog on their own. And if they call me wanting resources, I tell them, you know, follow such and such, you know, DVD or, or website or Facebook page, but do exactly what they say. Don't come up with your own ideas, your own thoughts. Do exactly what they say, and you can train a good dog. You can follow smart work from start to finish. You can you can follow uh, Lardy's total retriever training from start to finish. Do exactly what they do, and you'll have a good dog. Those guys uh, know what they're doing, and do what the pros tell you to do. Find some pros to train with. I, like Bob said, there's always people here, you know, every day training with us who just, you know, maybe they need property, maybe they need resources, maybe they need birds, maybe they need advice. But find someone that, you know, will open up their their, their land and their family to you and, and spend time with them, help them out. You know, don't be afraid to sit out of the gun face and throw a bird all day. Shoot flyers, do whatever it takes to, to get out there and work. Uh, and, and, you know, find people that want to help you. There's good people in this world all over the country. <laughs> not all flyer shooters are created equal um not all flyer transporters are created equal oh, just, just kind of lighten the mood a little bit <clears throat> so we've been shooting a flyer every day for our master national dogs for the last couple of weeks and you know flyers are expensive well so, to, to be exact pheasants are ten dollars and ten dollars and fifty cents and Here in Georgia, it's going to be fifteen, sixteen, seventeen dollars, depending on where you get them. 
But so we bought a, a supply of pheasants, and we went, I don't know, Tuesday afternoon, bought, you know, 40 more pheasants for the next day. And, you know, I'm doing my kennel duties and all the other things that comes along with the job. And I said, hey, Bob. Bob said, hey, can I help? I said, yeah. Go get the pheasants, put them in a flyer crate, and let's, you know, go. We're going to go train off campus today. And so Bob thought that a certain amount of pheasants in a crate weighed enough that going down I-85 at 70 miles an hour, they would not need to be tied down. I hear you laughing, Kevin. I like it. They would not need to be tied down or rats to strap down or whatever, you know, on top of his trailer. Do you know how many times I've told him this? <laughs> and so, you know, we got on the interstate, headed up to the training grounds, and <laughs> shortly thereafter, I get a phone call from one Bob Owens of Lone Duck Outfitters and Dog Training Kennels that all of our flyers have now been splattered on I-85 from a tractor trailer. And so, I don't know how we got onto that. I just thought it'd be fun to tell the Lone Duck Dog Chronicles <laughs> listener to strap your flyer crate down on your trailers or trucks. I've A been, lot of my career has been uh, built around making mistakes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's another one I won't do again. Blaine, I've been driving I, behind Bob before where we go over train tracks and watch the ducks skip or the you know the the box crate from the front of the trailer to the back of the trailer and I call him and he's like yeah but it's still on top we're good it's fine yeah. <laughs> so this this has happened before Kevin is that what you're saying oh yeah every oh, every day all I know is <laughs> this is until I needed the last podcast last year remember we were talking about how many dogs you need to train you know to pay for an employee or whatever train almost an entire dog this month to pay for the flyers that I killed that day. Well, it was an expensive expensive life lesson. It all worked out and we may do. And it it didn't work out for the pheasants. They were screwed out for me. Not that particular group of pheasants (laughs) or that flyer crate. Luckily, that was the first question I asked Bob. Was it my flyer crate or yours? So it was Bob. So that was one hot point of the day. Should I ask how anyway. my pigeons fared on the way down? Uh, Let's go to the next question. Let's go to the next question. Dang. All right. Uh, same gentleman. Blaine, what did you do pre-dog training? What was your career before you made the jump? I have a degree in special education, which maybe is why I'm good with boys. Um, <laughs> no, I have a, I have an education degree. I have a college degree. Um, I don't know who I was talking to, but sometime in the last couple of weeks, talked to a gentleman and said, you know, most dogs are pretty intelligent guys. Um, they're college educated. Maybe Bob was talking to the college educated guys. But, um, you know, whether that was there, it was Evan Thames. Um, he's got a biology degree. Um, there's, you know, these dog trainers are smart guys that know I don't mean to interrupt to... you. I have an ology degree as well. Yeah, an ology? Sociology. Sociology. That's what all the, uh, the washout rugby players did. 
He had a few concussions. Don't worry about it. We can keep yeah. going. So anyway, my background was in education, um, and I use I use a lot of that stuff with my dogs. Um, in, in special education, you develop a, a program, an education plan for each individualized student, um, depending on their you know disabilities and their you know struggles in learning, and you come up with a plan to better suit their needs. And so we try to do that with our dogs. Uh, every dog has special needs and, you know, a way that they're going to learn better. And it's our job to develop a plan that's going to better each individual dog and keep them on the right, right track. And there's no cookie cutter plan that's going to work exactly the same for every single dog. And a good, mature dog trainer is going to realize that and know that they're going to have to stretch and do things a little bit different to help a, a certain dog become successful. And, you know, that's just part of, uh, part of the job. And I think my, my, you know, my background in education, especially in special education uh, has helped in that. So that's pretty, I think I knew that about you as far as your education degree and, and what you did pre dog training. Um, I think we, I want to double back to, to a discussion we had earlier on the podcast about some of the challenging things about being a dog trainer. It's, and to the education level and the intelligence that these guys have at the high level, you know, the Stephen Durances who just won the super retriever series, for instance, you talk to that guy, he is smart. You know, he analyzes. When we're training a dog every day, it's not as simple as have a dog pick up a bird. It's where are we putting that bird when we throw it? It's instantaneous decisions you're making when the dog's running to the bird. Do I make a correction? Do I not make a correction? Should I blow the whistle? Shouldn't I blow the whistle? You're mentally on every time you pull a new dog out. What does this dog need? How am I going to handle this dog? all the different corrections you need to make, all the different body languages, how does this dog handle things? And you're constantly thinking. And so you mentally are tired at the end of the day, not just physically. So, okay, cool. That's something I want to talk about. Now, to answer his question, what did I do before I was a dog trainer? What a good question. All right. First job I had out of college, I sold copiers. That sucked to the big one. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely don't suggest that to anybody. Um, Second job I had, I sold business insurance. And that is where I developed my entrepreneurial spirit. Because I would interview and, and talk with business owners and realize that they were very similar to who I was. You know, hardworking had goals, you know, they weren't exceptionally intelligent. They weren't like maybe the Stephen Jobs, you know, that I had this vision that a business owner was a genius. No, they were average to above average people that busted their butt, had a vision and chased that vision. Um, so that's where I learned that. And then I sold oil and auto supplies. That sucked. The second big one. Um, but actually during that two year stint is where loaned up grew the biggest because I was able to uh, poor those poor people. I didn't work very hard for them. Let's be real honest. I did what I had to do. 
Um, but I was able to answer my phone and, and develop Lone Duck while I was on the road selling oil filters and oil to car dealerships and jazz, driving a 2002 PT Cruiser. That's real life. It had a turbo real engine, though, Lone didn't it? It did have a turbo, and I stuck a Lone Duck decal on it, so I was advertising while I was driving on the road. Suckers. Shout out to Superior Lubricants. <laughs> hey, they're not no no free advertising. They're not paying for that. Yeah, exactly. They're not paying for that ad. <laughs> well, anyways, they sucked. Uh, <laughs> my next job was for a company called PWF, Phoenix Welding and Fabricating, and that was probably my favorite job I had before training dogs. And I was the head of marketing and sales. Now, when I say I was the head of marketing and sales, it's because I was the only one in marketing and sales. So you can't be number two when you're the only one. But it was neat because it was the two business owners, the CFO and myself, managing that business, growing that business, making decisions all together as a team. And I learned a lot from it. And I learned a lot from them as business owners. Some of the things they did great, some of the things they didn't do great. How did I want to grow and develop? And they were super nice guys. They were around my my age, and and I loved it. But then Rhett called me and said, "I I need a young dog trainer. Would you want to come work for me?" And I I did. I, I quit my job. I took Lone Duck and dog training seriously, and, and quit my job and moved to South Carolina from New York. I left my family, my girlfriend, my friends, and chased my dream for nine, ten months. And I was mentored by him and all the dogs that I trained down there. And those dogs taught me a lot. And the experience I had down there was fantastic. So that's what we did. Um, Next question. Um, Do I drink cheap beer because I'm broke or because I love it? Both. <laughs> I just get good clients that like to bring me good gifts. We don't have to drink cheap beer or cheap, or cheap whiskey. Fair enough, Blaine. I have good clients that bring me bush light camel cans. You can <laughs> suck it. Shout out to Ben and uh, Hunter's owner. He brought me a 30 pack of bush light before my road trip. Thanks, buddy. Maybe that's why my flyers are gone. Ah, yeah, those bush lights didn't make it. Um, they didn't make the trip. Uh, no, I drink bush light because I choose it and because it's economical. I'm frugal. That's the second big word I, I dropped on the podcast tonight. All right, Saxton asked if we are coffee or energy drink, guys. Go ahead, Blaine. Coffee between 5 a.m. and about 9, and then half of a red line around 10 or 11 and if you're going to grind till dark drink the other half around four o'clock and then as bob has developed um a taste for the red line then it makes a good spoon at 10 o'clock and so it's you know a multifaceted um energy drink but coffee and the energy drink to get you through daylight to dark I am 90% just a coffee guy. 
I drink my coffee black. Like I like my black labs. And around lunchtime, I'm done drinking coffee. Now on long road trips, I'll do an energy drink, but they usually tear my stomach up. So that's not good for old Uncle Bob. But coffee is the way to go. All right. Next question. Uh, I, I can't, you know how terrible this is. I can't even read my handwriting. Uh, so my bad on your name here, but how did we do our ribeye blend? Give, give them the tutorial on your, the ribeye tonight. Very simple. Keep it simple on the ribeyes. Salt and pepper, garlic powder. Let it sit, get to room temperature. Get your big green egg or your acorn or whatever other Komodo style grill that you use to 550 degrees. Put the steak on the grill, count to two minutes, flip the steak over, count two more minutes. At that point, you want to put some melted butter on the steak, close both vents on the top and bottom, and count three minutes. Pull the steaks off, and you have a perfect medium rare steak. I will second the perfect medium rare steak. It was unbelievable dinner tonight. All right. We are going to wrap this podcast up. But before you hit stop, I need you to listen. Kevin had a litter of golden retriever puppies this week. I'm super proud of him. We've got several left. I think we had, what, 10 puppies, Kev? Six boys, four girls? Yep, 10 healthy good ones. And they're growing like weeds, and they are up for sale. So we have a few sold. So if you're interested in, in bringing on a golden retriever into your home and hunting blind, reach out to us. There's a little form we need you to fill out to learn about your needs, and we'll take good care of you. We'll tell you about the parents and the health clearances and all that. So shoot us a direct message, and we'll get that taken care of. These are not cheap puppies, everybody. So if you're looking for a cheap puppy, this is not it. But if you're looking for a really well-bred, field-bred golden retriever, shoot us a message if you're serious, and we'll help you out. We'd be glad to have you to have one of our dogs. Big shout-out to old ourselves, Lone Duck Outfitters. We've got a website. <laughs> Several of you, a lot of you, have gone on the website and bought hats and T-shirts. So thank you so much for supporting the podcast and supporting our mission of the Unspoken Bond. Thank you very much. Big shout out to the pterodactyl, Blaine Tarnecki. And being on our podcast for a second time, I think we brought a lot of knowledge and insight, some, some harder things to talk about, about being a dog trainer, the grind. So thank you. Um, I wish all of his dogs success these next few days as we, you know, dive into the Master National and into this. 1100 dog test where about a 20% pass rate. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be fun. Stay tuned on Instagram and, and we'll keep you updated on everybody's progress. Kevin, thanks for being a part of the show, my friend. I think we had a good one. What do you think, Kev? I've heard worse ones. <laughs> we appreciate your input tonight, Kevin. Yeah, hey. I, I like the little uh side shout out. Pretty cool. Uh having Angelon. Surprise yeah. guest. 
surprise guest. I do think that was really, really, really cool. She's oh, uh, absolutely. awesome. She's an awesome woman and Blaine is super lucky to have her a part of his life and team here at Hudson river retrievers. And, um, you know, I think we're all lucky at the end of the day. So guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of lone ducks, gun dog chronicles, as always subscribe, hit that five star, leave a review. If you didn't like it, go find something else. Hold on. Blaine wants to say something. Hey, patreon.com forward slash lone duck golfers is a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go. Join the community. We appreciate it. And we'll see you there. Hey, listeners. Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.